0: So, do you like that 80s vibe? It's just a groove. That's a nice little groove. I love it. Well, uh, let's get some lights on here. So, um, the reason I'm sitting in a chair in the dark, I'm not sure. We're working on it. So, uh, thank you, Curtis. Thanks, guys. You're awesome. So, um, I want to just kind of... I want to take a little different approach to how we start today. Usually I start with filleting myself open and just laying it all out there. In fact, somebody caught me between services and said, are you okay? You look a little flushed." I said, well, to borrow a term, I'm having a vulnerability hangover right now. So, um, I don't know if you've ever had one of those, but that's when you kind of let it all hang out, and then you go, you're walking off and the devil's whispering in your ear, you're an idiot. They're, they're going to think you're weak. They're gonna, I mean, it's just amazing what happens in your head when you open yourself up. Annette and I learned a long time ago, we made a commitment 26 years ago when we came together, and got married, that uh, we, we had some axioms that we're going to live our marriage by. One is this, and we call it this, very simple. No secrets, no leverage. No secrets, no leverage. If there's no secrets in your life, the enemy has no leverage on your life. And so we made up our mind that we were going to be transparent, we're going to be vulnerable, and we're going to be open no matter what. In fact, not knowing where God was going to take us, where we were going to have a, a small sphere of influence or it was going to be a larger or greater sphere of influence. Either way, we made up our mind, no secrets. We're not going to hold anything back. And so we, that precipitates sort of a sense of we show up and we throw up. You know what I'm saying? And so that's just who we are. That's how we're wired, and we made that commitment from the very start. Another axiom that we live our lives by is that we will never hide our scars. When we got married, we both brought Samsonite into the marriage. You may know what I'm talking about? Anybody dragging around any baggage? So we brought baggage to our, our second marriage, and, and immediately that engaged and precipitated all kinds of complicated things. But in the midst of that, we were sporting wounds, some of those wounds were still open. Some of them had begun to scar over and to use kind of a gross analogy, scab over. I mean, we were just, we were in that place of woundedness but growth. And so when we first got together, we made up our mind we would never hide our scars because what we determined was this. Scars are the evidence that God still heals. So you can look at a scar as a wound or you can look at a scar as a miracle of God because it's proof that God still heals. And so for us, we choose to look at the scar as a positive, not a negative. So why would I hide something that's evidence that God is still at work? So we don't. Now, I'm conscious of this. We have multiple generations and we are blessed to be a multi- multi-generational church, which means we have from one bar ditch somebody asked me the other day what a bar ditch was. I'm like, you're not from around here, are you? So a bar ditch is just a big ditch on either side of the road that's kind of for water, you know, just water abatement and whatnot. And so it's just a, it's a ditch on either side of the road. So when I say one bar ditch to the other, I'm just so you know, one end to the other. Okay, I'll clarify that. So speaking in those terms, we have age groups represented. We have the younger generation represented in here. And And you know what? We're... So passionate for the younger generation. We're so thankful. And I want to say thank you to our younger generation for putting up with my period references to Barney Fife, Opie and Andy. I mean, thank you for smiling even though you have no clue what I'm talking about unless you watch TV land occasionally and so thank you for putting up to period references that don't relate to you and for our older generation I want to say thank you for smiling and putting up with my references and my filleting my life open and I will say this it's harder sometimes for some generations because you were taught and your family maybe didn't open up. And so when you got a guy like me getting up here and going, hey, by the way, good morning, rip, you know, and I'm totally laying myself open, it's awkward, it's uncomfortable, because that's not what you're used to. I had somebody approach me recently and said, I've never heard a pastor open his life up like you do. And I said, thank you. Thank you. And I said, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry you've not heard that before. Somewhere along the line, we bought into the idea that if we act like everything's okay, then everything will be okay, and that is not the truth. And so, the reason why Annette and I are open and vulnerable and transparent is not to make you uncomfortable. It's actually to say, hey, we got stuff too, but God is amazing. Hey, we have things we're working on, but look at how God has... We're not where we want to be, but we're not where we used to be. Thank God we're in process. Annette, I mean, talking about some generations not sharing things. Recently, about three weeks ago, four weeks ago, Annette found out that she has another sibling that she didn't know about. Hello, it's complicated, and you're not alone, literally. You have more family than you thought, And while she's on the phone with her mouth open, I was working on my shelves in the office. I bought some shelves for the office. I'm putting them together. She's on the phone with her sister. Her sister's 69 years old, going through some paperwork. She says, Annette, we have a sibling we didn't know about. And while she's over there screaming and yelling and saying, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, I'm going, who died? What's wrong? What's going on? Because at my age, those kind of phone calls are coming more often. And I'm like, what, what, what? I'm assuming it's bad. It was actually amazing and exciting. And then in the same conversation, she says, gosh, that's just like, it's just like, this is her mom, you know, mom having a a sibling. It's just like dad having another child. And Annette goes, what? She said, you didn't know? She said, there's another sibling. It's complicated. So she didn't find out that she had one. She found out she had two because nobody was talking. My mom passed away young. That's why Mother's Day is funky for me. I don't know if y'all have that. It's just weird. It's a weird day for me. I'll go home, crawl up into a fetal position, put on some TV. No, I'm just kidding. It's not that bad, but it is like weird for me. It's I have a weird vibe all day. And so... I found out going through my mom's paperwork. She passed away at 45. was a college student at the time. I'm going through these old faded manila folders, and I'm going through these documents just trying to figure out what all is what before the funeral and all the the end proceedings, and I find a manila folder and I open it up, and I find out that my mom and dad had been married, divorced, and they they were on their second marriage when we came along. Well, how many you know that might raise some questions? Do I have siblings? In fact, it so messed me up that a number of years later, Annette and I, we went over to visit my uncle because I'm like, is there anything I don't know? Am I adopted? Have you ever asked that question of your family? (laughs) I'm taller. I'm heads, heads up taller than everybody in my family. I look around going, I can't be from the same gene pool. You ever had that happen? I did. I was serious about it. So I find out that, that my parents, and I, told, I went to my grandmother, I said, Granny, that's what I call my grandmother, Granny, why didn't you ever tell us? And they're like, well, we just never talked about it. Is there anything else I need to know? She said, well, not that I can think of. Her generation just didn't talk, whether it was from shame whether it was because they were bending moral rules or breaking rules or whether it was from condemnation or fear of what other people would think. We just didn't talk about it and we just went along like everything's okay. But it wasn't. My own brother, my young brother, suffered a molestation when he was in the first grade by a pedophile who lived across the street from the school we attended. Horrible. He wasn't the only. There were others But at that time, no one talked about this stuff. And when it came out, the police showed up and took a report, and that was the last time we ever talked about it. And to this day, I love my brother with all my heart. He's one of my best friends. But to this day, he suffers from the the fallout and the residue of that unresolved wound. Why? Because we didn't talk about it. So as I got older, I decided I wasn't going to hide my stuff. I wasn't going to hold back what may help somebody else. And, and I know this has been made popular today over different circumstances, but it still, it still is a good word, and I don't want to let this, this phrase get ruined, but we need to have a Me Too culture in the sense of going, Me Too, I'm going through stuff. Me Too, I'm hurting. Me Too, it's not all clean Me too, I've got stuff. And so I wanted to give you a why behind the what because I know for some of you, when I go there, it makes you very uncomfortable. Well, this isn't the church I grew up in. (laughs) Thank you, Steve. And I echo that hallelujah. One last story and then I'll I'll move on because we are going to dive in. I'm excited about what we're going to talk about, but I wanted to share this heart-to-heart with you. When we were in one church, I'm not going to name that church, but we were in a church serving and the church was exciting and vibrant and great things were happening. But the only hard part was the pastor was not transparent at all. You couldn't get to him. And I was on staff and I could not get in his orbit. I couldn't. He was so perfect, at least I thought he was, that I could not even approach him. And I made a determination as a young minister that I won't be that. I don't want to be that. And so for the, for the few of you that get really uncomfortable, I'm sorry, but not sorry. And I mean that in a good way. But for those of you that need to hear that, hey, pastors are fighting the same battles you are and the same struggles. And sometimes we win and sometimes we lose and sometimes it's a draw. For those of you, I want you to know you got you got somebody walking with you that's on the journey with you. And so I just wanted to share that with you. So to the relief of some, I'm not going to fillet myself anymore today. So we're good. Let's move forward. First of all, I want to say this. We're talking about the family matters because the family matters. The family matters in the heart of God. And love wins the day, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Last week we talked about in episode one it's complicated, but you're not alone. Amen and hallelujah that we're not alone. Families are not perfect, but families can be present. Families show up. In fact, we had this conversation with our leaders because as our church is going to step out on its own, as Journey's going to step out, Alamo Ranch is going to step out, uh, we were talking about, so what is it? what does family look like to be a family of churches? And there was some confusion at the top, and I said, oh, that's easy. Families show up. Families show up to Thanksgiving. They show up to Easter. They show up to celebrate life together. That's what family does. Family shows up. They're not perfect, but they're present. Amen? So let's talk about this. What does it mean that love wins the day? I got this statement. Healthy families create an atmosphere. Think in terms of the atmosphere, the milieu, the ethos, the environment of your own home, your culture. Healthy families create a culture, an atmosphere where love grace, belonging, and hope are among the highest virtues. Don't just blow past that sentence. Every one of those words have gravity to them. And every one of those words, when they're in the home, produce life. And they produce expectation of something more. And it means we're always growing and moving forward. Brene Brown became a hero of mine about six years ago when she did a TED talk, his TED Talk Houston. It was the introductory TED talk of Houston when they first did their first, so they invited uh, Brene in, she was a researcher and a professor at the University of Texas, and she came in and they expected her to do this very highly intellectual talk, and instead she got up and talked about vulnerability. And it turns out it's become the, it was the number one TED talk of all time. I forget how many millions of views that video got. And it vaulted her into the public scene. Not because of her strength, but because of her courage, her bravery, and her vulnerability. So she writes this. Listen to this statement. A deep sense of love and belonging is an irreducible need of all people. Think of this in the context of family. We are biologically, cognitively, physically, and spiritually wired to love, to be loved, and to belong. When those needs are not met, we don't function as we were meant to. We break. We fall apart. We numb. We ache. We hurt others. We get sick. In the milieu of the family, we've got to embrace this idea of belonging where love wins the day. I recently walked with a family, and Annette and I have done this over the years, and it was, it was a situation where, where one of the children came out, and the family was devastated. And this was at another church, and I remember this Man, this father, asking me, what do I do? I said, you do the same thing you've always done. You love, because love wins the day. You love them and you trust Jesus in them. That's a hard thing. But because they had created a home where belonging was, was without question and unconditional, they were able to navigate that. And it ended very well. That's enough. That's all I'm going to say about that situation. So I want to pick up in a story. Annette and I, we were... Y'all remember Wet and Wild in Dallas, Fort Worth? Remember that? This place was awesome. And uh, now there's a whole bunch of them out there. But I remember we went to this one, and we took Faith. She was tiny. She was a little bitty thing. And we took her and she had on those little arm floaties, the ones that blow up that make kids look so hilarious. She had those on and we were having a great time and she's a little water baby anyway. So we we're splashing around, we're having a blast. Gets towards the end of the day, we're exhausted, right? And so Annette says, hey, they're about to close the park. Why don't you go to our locker, which was like across the park, get our stuff and then I'll, I'll watch her. She's at, So she was in the waiting, I mean the, the wave pool, right? Towards the end of the day, everybody's tired and hot, so everybody ends up in the wave pool. like thousands of people out there. So it's huge, and she's out there splashing around the waves. I leave. When I come back, they'd sounded the, the buzzer, and then they made an announcement, park's closing in 10 minutes, gather your things, head towards the entrances, blah, blah, blah. So everybody's moving, and I'm going back towards the wave pool against the crowd, and I'm kind of fighting people, and I get to where there's an opening, and I see Annette standing on the little beach area looking out into the wave pool, and I recognize that look. And that look in that nanosecond told me she had lost faith. She didn't lose her faith. She lost our daughter. It sounds funny to say that. She lost Rachel Faith Pruitt, our kid. And the frantic look on her face, something instantly snapped in me. I moved from being Pastor Jimmy to, to Arnold Schwarzenegger in Terminator 2, which out of the, all of them, that's my favorite. And I turned into that man, and I was like a machine, and all of a sudden, I didn't care if, there, if I was going against a wave of people. They better move out of the way. I was a cornerback in football. I can hit somebody. So I'm making my way through there. I'm navigating because I see the look on her face. And I, I'm looking, to, I'm scanning the crowd like any father would do. And I'm frantic. And something starts innate building up in me. It's intuitive. You move into protector, terminator, protector, terminator. And I'm imagining what I'm going to do to anyone who's touched my baby. I mean, I'm just saying, Lord, I'll repent later. But I'm going to take care of business. So I'm, I'm going and it's like all kinds of thoughts are running through my head and like just... high speed just unbelievable she's frantic I get there by the time I finally get up to the pool the pool is clear no child and I mean we don't know what to do thousands of people just came out and we tell the lifeguards and to their credit they went to work immediately I mean the first scary thing is that they're they're looking on the bottom of the pool they're going all around looking to make sure there's not a child on the bottom and I'm... I, this is all happening fast. And then everybody's breaking off. They make an announcement. And all like 30, 40, however many are there working, they all go into action. They're just like, search. I mean, seek and destroy. I mean, they're search, search, search. Everybody's just going everywhere. They're going, we got this. This happens all the time. Don't panic. This happens all the time. We'll find her. And we're going crazy. I'm starting to run around. Annette's running around. And I'm... I ki- kid you not. Woe to anybody who gets in my way. And so finally... Finally, after what seemed like an hour, and it was probably three to five minutes, we look over and we see Faith, happy-go-lucky, no big deal, walking down the edge of the pool. She had gone over into the kiddie pool that was down on the other end of the wave pool, and she was down there splashing around, having a great time, wondering what all the commotion's about. And she comes walking up like, what's the big deal? And in that moment, we realize... We didn't lose her. I don't know if you've ever been a parent who's lost a child before. Or a youth pastor who's lost a kid at Six Flags. Yes, it happened. And I live to tell about it. Jason gives you something to look forward to. So it happens. We lose things and we lose people. Listen to this story. This is amazing. I titled this section, it's in Luke chapter 2, and it's, I just titled it, We Lost the Son of God. So listen, I'm going to move quickly. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. No big deal. They're committed in their faith. They do it, and it's a big... The whole village goes together in a caravan. It's a big thing every year. After the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth. But Jesus... Remember, he's 12. But Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first. They did not miss the fact that Jesus was not with them. Could that be said of some churches today? Well, I didn't know he was gone. Didn't know he was missing. I, did, I never knew he was here. Would we know if Jesus wasn't here? His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed he was among the other travelers, but when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking for him among the relatives. That's one day. You know what that is? In their caravan, that's 20 miles One day, 20 miles, no child. Can you imagine what was coming over them? We're talking three to five minutes and I was ready to murder. I can't even imagine a day. Losing the son of God. There was a little more weight on this one. I'm just saying, not that we're valuing one over another, but I'm saying that's a pretty big deal. They started looking among their relatives and friends when they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. Day two. 20 miles. 40 miles. Two days. Three days later, they, they finally discovered him in the temple. Happy-go-lucky Jesus. Three days. Can you imagine? If you're not a parent, if you've never lost a kid, it's hard to wrap your mind around what they were feeling right now. Much less, Mary, virgin birth, you're going to be with a child and he should be called Emmanuel. He's the son of God. She lost the son of God. Three days later, they finally discover him. Look what he was doing. Sitting among the religious leaders, listening to them and asking questions. Twelve-year-old Jesus is sitting among the religious, these Pharisees and, and rabbis and teachers of the law. He's sitting among them Listening and asking questions. They probably thought it was cute. Look at this kid. And boy, does he ask some profound questions. You can imagine the doll. It had to be amazing. Wouldn't you love to be a fly on that wall? Mm-hmm. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Wait, he was asking questions, but also answers. That means he was answering questions. Twelve years old in the temple, Before Bar Mitzvah, he was not even considered a young adult and he had not picked a rabbi to follow. And here he is, a child in the temple astounding them. You have to get the scene. They had to be wondering, whose kid is this? And remember, he was two days out. Where did he sleep? Where did he hang out? What did he do that night? I have a feeling he slept in the temple somewhere. Probably made a game out. I probably was having a ball. I'm in my dad's house. I'm in my father's house. This is awesome. Can you imagine? His parents didn't know what to think. Now his mom goes all Jewish mom on him. Watch, look what happens. Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this to us? It's a very classic Jewish response. What have you done to us? Because you know she's freaking out. Your father and I have been frantic. There's that word, Frantic. Searching for you everywhere for three days. That strikes terror in any parent's heart. Verse 49, Jesus, so casual, 12 years old, so mature, says, but why did you need to search? Can you imagine a 12-year-old saying that to you? Three days, you're freaking out, and the kid says, what's the big deal? I have a feeling in that moment she was about to forget that he was the son of God and say, that boy's about to get a whooping of his life. (laughs) Come on, these were human people. We have to understand the Bible is full of people, human. In fact, none of them were perfect. So you have to enter into the story just a little bit and allow your sanctified imagination to run wild a little bit and go, what would that have really been like? That's why the Bible comes alive to me, because I enter into the story and go, whoa, that boy would have been grounded for eternity. (laughs) Forget what you're going to do for the world. You're grounded. I mean, right now, you're in trouble, mister. But why do you need to search? He asked, didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? Other translations will say, I must be about my father's business. This is actually accurate. He said that directly. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he meant. What do you mean they don't understand? It's because they were losing their minds in that moment. Because they were being fully... They were human beings being human in that moment. It was a mom and a dad who was frantic because they lost their child. And they didn't understand. Although Mary, remember, she pondered things in her heart. Remember the angel that showed up? In that moment, she forgot that an angel had showed up. In that moment, she forgot, Oh, wait, I'm a virgin and I had a baby. She forgot all of that because in her mind, she was frantic. And sometimes when we get under and we get, we can't see the force for the tree sometimes because when life throws you a curveball, all rationale goes out the window sometimes. And we can't even think. She couldn't even think, didn't even understand what he meant. It's like, you're so grounded. You're so in trouble. Verse 51, then he returned to Nazareth, Nazareth with them three days later, and was obedient to them. He submitted to them. And his mother stored all these things in her heart as she had done before. So she was pondering. This is what a mom does. Moms store things in their heart, right? Now we know that in the positive, but there's also another list that moms store in their hearts. Can I get an amen? In 1937... On May 8th at 6.57 p.m., you, uh, come on, we know there's a list, right? Come on, the list never goes away. She stored all these things in her heart. I think this is a good thing. Although, all that frantic, but understanding he was there with the religious leaders. Now, look what happens. Just the result. And again, this goes back to tell you the home he was brought up in. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. Why? Because his home was a place that was safe. His home was a place that valued faith and his home was a place that was full of grace. So making it real for real life. Same points as last week, but I want to stay on this, and we'll stay on these through the whole series. Family is a place where safety is valued. Now we think in terms, and we just default immediately, safe meaning keeping me from harm. But I'm talking about safety in the sense of the milieu, the culture, the atmosphere of the home, the ecosystem as we talked about last week. Every home has an ecosystem, a culture. And the question is, is your safe? And I'm not talking about from physical, I'm talking about emotional. Are people in your home approachable? Are they safe? Is dad safe? Is mom safe? My mom was safe. My dad was safe. I was blessed in that. I could talk to my parents. My mom and I were very close, other than not telling me about the divorce and remarriage. That was a surprise. But other than that... As far as I know, by the way, my dad's 81 years old. I got to spend some time with him three weeks ago. And I told Annette, the next time we sit down, I'm going to sit knee to knee with him. And I'm going to say, Dad, is there anything I need to know that I'm going to find out after I do your funeral? I just need to know, is there, are there any surprises? And I'm going to be real honest with my dad. Why? Because he's safe. He's safe. I can ask him that. Is your family a safe place? Look at this This from just before the story we read. When Jesus was younger and he was dedicated in the temple, and he was prophesied over in the temple, at the end of that, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee. This is when they were younger. To their own town of Nazareth. And look, what, look at the verse 40. And the child grew and became strong. It's almost similar to that other passage. He grew, became strong, he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Why? Because his home was a safe place. There was a place of nurture. It was a place of safety. It was a place where he could have open conversations. Cannot even imagine the conversations that happened around that dinner table. Well, Jesus, what did you do today? (laughs) Well, I contemplated saving mankind. I don't know. What do you do? We joked about, I want to be a superhero. He's saying, I am a superhero. He already is that. He already has the DNA of of a world changer already in him. It's already his destiny. Family is a place where faith is valued. We know faith was valued in that home, not just because of the encounter, not just because she was chosen, but because she found herself honorable in the Lord's eyes even before it happened. But also, the fact that they celebrated Passover and went with their village every year. They were a devout home. Their home was centered on faith. And he grew up understanding the law. He understood his faith, his heritage. He understood it because his family was a place where faith was valued. Listen to this in Matthew 17, and we see this expressed even in his young adulthood when he, Jesus replied, and he's talking to his own disciples, and he's teaching them. He says, because you have so little faith, I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, and he was pointing to a mountain, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. That's a lot of faith? No, just a mustard seed. He says this, and nothing will be impossible for you. This is the Son of God, but this is Jesus, the Son of Man. We sometimes get those mixed up. Son of God means he was fully deity, Son of Man means he was fully flesh. He bled, he hurt, he slept, he ate, he felt pain, he felt emotional pain, he felt distress, he had doubts. He himself was fully human, and he says this, nothing will be impossible for you if you have faith. Why? Because he was raised in an atmosphere, a milieu of faith. Family is a place where faith is valued. And the last thing, family is a place where grace is valued. A home that's full of safe people is a home where grace is valued, where forgiveness is the norm. We spent four weeks on forgiveness leading to this because we were coming this way, and you need to know, are you able and are you willing to have grace and extend grace to others? For me, it's a simple rule of thumb. I must extend the grace to others that I myself require, and I know how much I need. Why? Because I wrote the invisible sign up there. I need grace, so I have to extend it. Family is a place where grace is valued. And we have had to, in our own family, navigate life events that required much grace. How about you and your family? When your kids don't do what you thought they were going to do. They don't turn out and become what you thought they were going to become. They decide to take a different path than what you trained them and taught them to take. And they go off the rails for a little bit. What do you do? You reject? You push them away? You tell them they can't come home? Or do you do like the prodigal father who goes after their child and meets them halfway as they return to their right mind and say, we've always been here for you. We never left you. You may have left us, but we never left you. A home that values grace is a home where the kids will return because of the way they were raised and trained. Listen to this, John 1, 14, The Word, this is Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I like Eugene Peterson's rendering. He put on an earth suit and moved into the neighborhood. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. And look at a descriptor of Jesus' character and nature, full of grace and truth. By the way, those are not on opposite ends of the teeter-totter. Grace and truth are together. We sometimes set up this, well, if you're truthful with no grace... Then you're harsh and mean, but if you're all grace and no truth and it's just greasy grace and easy, you can sin and get away with it. That is, that is not the biblical description here. Grace and Kai is the, the descriptor. It's the word that, could, that ties them together. Pastor and teacher, Bab, repent and be baptized. All those are tied together with the little descriptor, Kai. It's a connector. And it means that they're inextricably connected. In other words, you cannot have one without the other. And so when he says grace and truth, he's not saying grace on this end and truth. How many of you, no, don't even raise your hand. But some of you have thought that way, not even meaning to. Because it's been taught that way. But that's not the truth. The truth is that grace and truth are together. They're inextricably connected. And they, you do not have one without the other. And that was the heart and nature of Jesus. Why? Because he was raised in a home where faith, where grace and safety were valued. So here's the deal. At the end of the day, right here in our own homes, love wins the day. Love wins the day. And we've made up our mind as a family that no matter how far off the rails any of us go, love is non-negotiable. Belonging is non-negotiable. Safety is non-negotiable. No matter what. And you know what? We're navigating stuff right now. But I'll save that filet job for another sermon, okay? You'll just have to wait on that one. (laughs) And some of you are going to say, me too. Us too. We get it. So, I love you. And yes, I am suffering from a vulnerability hangover right now. But I love you. I love you, and we're in this together. Let's go forward together, amen? Let's pray. Father, we honor you, love you. Oh God, may our homes be places full of grace, full of faith, full of belonging and hope, mercy, and life, expectation, and joy, and laughter in the midst of navigating change transition pain trauma drama all of the things that hit us the curveballs that life throws may we be people of faith people that are safe and people of grace father as we even walk out of here may we love our moms well may they know they're loved and valued and may this be a day where we celebrate the truth that family matters In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Love you. Have an amazing day and happy Mother's Day.